Hello, everyone, and welcome to the thrilling adventures of Superman, a podcast where Superman still stands for truth, justice, and the American way. My name is Michael Bradley, and this is episode 60. This episode, we will be looking at the Superman story from Action Comics number 26, returning to the pages of that comic for the first time since, well, quite a number of episodes. With Superman appearing in three different mediums at this point, or four if you count the daily and Sunday strips as separate, it it makes for longer periods of time between visits to any one medium. But I'm actually recording this just one day after the last episode you heard. I've fallen a bit behind on the show because of, you know, a lot of stuff going on in my non-podcasting life, and, and I'm trying to make up some ground to get my cushion back, because that's always a good thing to have when you podcast it. Especially when you're already one episode behind, like I am on this show. But as such, I don't have any feedback or email to read, and no other preamble of any kind that I can think of, so what I'm going to do is just go ahead and play a promo and come back for what you came here for. Do be sure to stick around until the end of the episode, though, as I'll be making an announcement about another podcasting venture that I'm a part of, and I think you're going to want to hear it. That said, I will be right back. The dawn of an age. The founding of a family. You know we haven't done enough research into the effects of cosmic rays. We've got to take that chance. Conditions are right tonight. Let's go. They're penetrating the ship. Our shielding isn't strong enough. I feel like I'm burning up. Too heavy. Can't move. Too heavy. We're all alive. I feel so strange. You're fading away. I can't see you at all anymore. Look what's happening to you. You are changing. Oh, Reed, not you too. What happened to me? To all of us. I can fly. We gotta use that power to help mankind, right? And so was born the Fantastic Four. For soon the Mole Man will have the entire world in his power. I am the mightiest living mortal on Earth. And now mankind shall feel that might. The Fantastic Four. Little do they dream they're but palms in the hands of Dr. Doom. The Human Torch will be the Puppet Master's next Victim. You athletes can't change the way I can. Got to be those powerful cousins. I've been expecting you. For I am the thinker. I vow never to return, my lord, until the Fantastic Four are no more and the planet Earth is no more. You're in the presence of the awesome Ramatats, King of Kings, Master of Men, and Lord of the Seven Sons. Fool, you're just a muscular freak. Blind or hold. Stop! You must not end on the castle of Diablo. My journey has ended. This planet shall sustain him to let it be drained of all elemental life. So speak, Galactus. Flame on! It's clobbering time! The Fantastic Four from the very beginning witnessed the origins of a legend. The Fantasticast. ffcast.libsyn.com Action Comics number 26 was released sometime around May 23rd, 1940. That puts it coming out just before the end of the radio storyline that Charlie and I will be looking at next episode. 
The Sunday and Daily Strips were also in the midst of storylines that we will be covering in upcoming episodes. It's got a July cover date and a 10 cent price tag. Our cover, Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics and the Superman Chronicles volume, both credit Joe Schuster for the pencils and Wayne Boring for the inks, while the Grand Comics database credits Wayne Boring for the whole thing. It shows Superman soaring through the sky with a crook under each arm. His cape streams out behind him and there's a full moon in the, the city skyline in the background. This is a really great cover. It may be my favorite Action Comics cover of the year 1940 that we've looked at so far. The only one that comes anywhere close would be issue number 23, but I think this one tops it fairly handily. The only thing that bugs me is that his shield, or the shield on his cape, is a yellow S on a blue field. Now, granted, that's how we've seen it in several recent stories, so I can't fault them for coloring it that way here, but I prefer the solid yellow or red and yellow shield. Uh, The blue on that part of the costume looks kind of off to me, both in the traditional sense and design-wise. But that's a very small thing. It's still an excellent cover, and, and like I said, among my favorites of the Action Comics issues that we've covered to this point. The banner at the bottom of the cover also reminds us that Action Comics is the world's largest-selling comic magazine. And this is the last cover with that banner, as next issue they move the text to the top, above the cover logo, where it will remain until 1943. Our Superman story inside the book was written by Jerry Siegel, of course, and was penciled by Paul Loretta and Paul Cassidy, and inked possibly by them or other members of the Schuster shop. The Superman Chronicles reprint actually says this was illustrated by Joe Schuster and the Schuster Shop. Loretta and Cassidy plainly both had a hand in the art, though, uh, but Schuster could have done, you know, vague layouts, and as the story goes, he was still doing faces at this point. So, the story is 13 pages long and has been called Professor Cobalt's Quack Clinic. <laughs> Professor Cobalt's Quack Clinic or just Professor Cobalt's clinic. As our story opens, Professor Clarence Cobalt himself pays a visit to the Daily Planet, looking to place an ad claiming he can cure infantile paralysis, or polio. The man behind the counter declines, saying that they don't accept ads from people making such outrageous claims. Cobalt protests to editor George Taylor, but grows irate and threatens to get violent when Taylor just called him a quack and a crook. Clark Kent comes to Taylor's defense, snapping Cobalt's cane and throwing him out the door. As Taylor and Lois Lane stand amazed at Clark's action, Clark thinks to himself how he needs to control himself or risk giving away his identity as Superman. Soon, Taylor tells Clark to look into Cobalt and hopefully get a good expose out of it. Lois weasels her way into covering the story as well, and the two soon arrive at the clinic where they meet a boy named Tommy along with his mother. Tommy is apparently being treated by Cobalt, but Lois and Clark soon discover that the medicine he was given is nothing but sugar pills. After getting Tommy's mother's name and address, Lois enters the clinic, feigning that she needs treatment for a limp, while Clark switches to Superman and leaps up the side of the building to listen in. After hearing Cobalt and his assistant Grafton talk about their evil scheme, and then sell Lois a bottle of medicine for $50, Superman leaps back down and, as Clark, meets Lois as she comes back out of the building. 
Lois checks the medicine and realizes that it, too, is nothing but sugar pills. So Clark decides to go in himself and confront Cobalt. But he's quickly tossed out on the street, only to have to suffer more indignation when Lois mocks him for being a coward. Cobalt sees Lois and Clark talking, and Grafton quickly heads outside and forces Lois and Clark into a car at gunpoint. While Lois continues to chastise Clark, Grafton drives and soon arrives back at the clinic. He then locks Lois and Clark in a room, and joins Cobalt in a secret passageway to listen in on anything they might talk about. Thanks to his super hearing, Clark realizes that they're listening in, and decides to beat them at their own game by talking to Lois about astronomy until the crooks finally get bored and storm into the room, demanding the reporters tell what they know. Clark feigns cowardice, and Cobalt and Grafton lock him in another room, saying they'll be back in five minutes. Once they leave, Clark switches to Superman and is able to bend the bars on the window and make an escape. Circling around, Superman rips a chunk out of the wall, freeing Lois. As Superman leaps off, she tells him that Clark, too, is being held. After depositing Lois back at the Daily Planet and telling her to hurry her story into the next edition, he then heads back to the clinic, slips into the room, unbends the bar, and changes back to Clark, all with 30 seconds to spare. When Cobalt returns, Clark tells him that the Daily Planet is out to expose his chicanery. As Cobalt runs off, frantic to destroy his records before he's discovered, Grafton ties Clark up. Once Grafton has gone as well, Clark easily snaps his bonds and races off as Superman. The Man of Steel throws a safe, and no idea where he pulled that from, but he throws the safe as a distraction and leaps onto the door molding unseen by the crooks as they enter the room. Swinging into the next room, Superman slams the door behind him and barricades it with a dresser, locking Cobalt and Grafton in the room. Superman then grabs the records-filled safe, a different safe from the one he threw earlier, and leaps out the window, depositing it on the roof. While back inside, Cobalt and Grafton break out of the room and realize their records are gone. Thinking Kent must have had something to do with it, they head upstairs, just as Superman dashes back into the clinic and is able to re-enter the room, switch to Clark, and tie himself back up just as the crooks enter, none the wiser. Cobalt raves about how Lois and the records are gone, and that he knows Clark is responsible, and then tells Grafton to go ahead and kill Clark. But before Grafton can do the deed, they hear a newsboy out the window proclaiming, Read all about the fake infantile paralysis clinic! And, Daily Planet discovers new way to print newspapers at lightning speed! Read all about it! Okay, I made that last bit up. But these papers did get on the street way too fast, don't you think? In any event, Cobalt rushes out and buys a paper, and then decides to let Clark go, telling him to, to deliver a message that they're going to sue the paper for libel. Once out of sight, Clark switches back to Superman, grabs the safe, and deposits it at the Daily Planet, and then leaps off again while Taylor pleads for an interview. Later, Clark arrives back at the Daily Planet, and Taylor tells him that he wants a sample of Cobalt's fake medicine. So, Superman shortly arrives at Tommy's house, only to find out that Cobalt had paid them a visit, and took the so-called medicine back, threatening to kill them if they talked. Superman then returns to the Daily Planet, and looks through the records, using his photographic memory and super speed, to quickly memorize the names and addresses of all of Cobalt's patients. Superman then pays a visit to all of Cobalt's patients, only to find that they too have been similarly threatened. He comes across a girl who's about to die because of Cobalt's phony treatment. 
He then quickly runs out and gets a doctor, fighting his way through a hurricane in the process, and ultimately is able to save the girl. Meanwhile, Lois has broken into Cobalt's clinic in order to try and steal a sample of the fake medicine, but is caught by Cobalt and Grafton, who force her into a special heating cabinet intent on killing her. But suddenly, a mob of disgruntled patients bust through the clinic doors, ready to lynch the phony doctors. Clark arrives back at the Daily Planet and finds out that Lois went to the clinic. Speeding off, he arrives as Superman back at the clinic as Cobalt and Grafton are being hung up from a tree. Superman snaps the branch off the tree, saving them, and the crooks say they'll confess everything if Superman agrees to protect them from the mob. Superman tells the crowd to calm down, and then presents the safe loaded with the crooks' files, and apparently money. Hanging is too good for Cobalt and Grafton, he says. Send them to jail, and this money to President Roosevelt's Infantile Paralysis Fund. Cobalt and Grafton then try to run, but Superman grabs them and tosses them into a police patrol wagon that has just arrived. Superman then drops it and Lois off at the police station, and weeks later, Taylor congratulates Clark and Lois for their part in bringing the phony doctors to justice. Meanwhile, Lois chimes in that all the credit should really go to Superman. The End And the last panel on the final page is an ad encouraging readers to help fight infantile paralysis by contributing to President Roosevelt's fund, and it has the address. Roosevelt founded the National Foundation for Infantile Paralysis in 1938 in order to help combat polio, and in the 1970s, it officially changed its name to the March of Dimes, which is a nonprofit still in operation today, and is a worthwhile cause that, that works to help improve the health of both babies and their mothers. As far as my comments on the story go, page one, we our, our story opens with a half-page splash, and the story actually starts in the splash again this issue. It's really an interesting splash. We get a little different view of the Daily Planet than we've seen before. This is apparently the front desk, and we see you know stacks of newspapers behind the counter. Uh, there's a guy here on the left probably filling out paperwork of some sort. It's, it's hard to tell because the text box is covering him up slightly. But in the background, we see a kid carrying some papers and a large book stand, and you know the editor's office is there too. It's not especially detailed, but on par with the average of what we've seen in the books to this point. I just like it because it's different. And it's also one of those very rare times when you don't see Superman or Clark Kent in the splash. So that's pretty interesting. Also of note is that the Superman logo type here is again the varied hand-drawn version rather than the refined version from the World's Fair comic. They don't start regularly using the refined version for a few more issues yet. Here we're also introduced to Professor, air quotes, Professor Clarence Cobalt. And I really like the look of this guy because, again, he's a different looking villain. He's a bit older, he's got a big bushy beard and a monocle. Actually, he looks a little bit like Alan Moore, if Alan Moore had a monocle. But anyway, what I'm saying is, like a lot of the villains, they have a distinctive look. Even Grafton, who we meet later, has a bit of a different look. The Superman stories from this era may have been, you know, in the broadest strokes, largely similar. But one thing that's hard to 
to deny is that their main villains, well, maybe not always, but they frequently had unique-looking villains. Uh, they they weren't just you know the the stock guys in suits. Sometimes they were, but but the majority of time they weren't. Page two, I think we might have a mixed up word balloon here, because when Clark and Lois meet Tommy and his mother, Lois asks to see one of the pills, but then in the next panel, Clark has the pills and says, as I suspected, nothing but sugar. It doesn't affect the story any, but. Ultimately, it, it was just a little bit odd. Page three, after Clark confronts Cobalt and they start to throw him out, Clark says, Stop! You can't do this to the press! Um, y- yes, they can. <laughs> if you are on someone's property or in their place of business, they have every right to throw you out if they want to press or not. Page four, I don't completely understand what the purpose was of forcing Lois and Clark into the car and driving around. At first I thought they ended up somewhere else, but the narration says when they reach the clinic and Cobalt is there and it's clearly the same place they were before. So that's kind of odd. But I'd really like to see an extended version of this scene with Clark droning on about astronomy while Lois wonders, you know, what the heck he's talking about. You can imagine Clark talking on and on like a like a mix of Carl Sagan and, and Ben Stein from Ferris Bueller's Day Off and his voice fading out as her mind slowly drifts off thinking about all the ways she's going to escape and leave him there to die. But uh, skipping ahead to page six, uh, we, we get to this page then and, and Superman has rescued Lois by this time and Lois reminds him, or tells him I guess, that Clark still needs rescue too. And he says... I don't think that cowardly weakling is worth saving, but I'll do it for you. While thinking, can she really be interested in Clark Kent after all? This is another one of those crazy things that makes me wonder exactly what Siegel was intending between these two. I mean, clearly the intention is for Superman and Lois to be a couple. So in that respect, it makes something that could probably be called sense that he'd be so harsh on Clark here. But at the same time, why does he, as Clark, keep asking Lois out and feigning affection towards her? From from Superman's point of view, or, or we'll say Kal-El, just for simplicity, from Kal-El's point of view, let's say he actually is interested in Lois. But as Superman, he can never be with her, as he's pointed out in previous stories. And then we have Clark, who's a nebbish, and... Kal-El goes out of his way to make sure that she's not interested in him, so then why does he express surprise that she might actually be interested in Clark, and then disappointment when she's not? It's just all very inconsistent, and none of it makes much sense to me. It it really feels like Clark and Superman is as, as schizo as Lois, or, or that maybe he's just messing with her, which I really don't like. I mean, Maybe that's not what Siegel intended, but you know, looking at the, looking at these stories as a whole, that's that's how it comes off. It's just very, very odd. At the bottom of page six here, they've tied Clark up with the ropes, and he breaks the ropes to free himself, and then rushes off as Superman. But then two pages later, when he comes back, he is able to tie himself up again, somehow with the ropes that he just snapped. 
tying yourself up is difficult enough, but I could overlook that had he not just broken the ropes. Pages 7 and 8, I, I really like the bit with Superman tricking Gobald and Grafton, Gobalt, Cobalt and Grafton into the room and then stealing the entire safe rather than just, you know, ripping the safe open and taking the papers. I thought that was kind of clever. Plus, it's a lot more dynamic to see Superman running about carrying a safe over his head rather than just a stack of papers. But we have another nitpick here, too. And again, this is just one of those Golden Age comics things that we kind of have to put up with. I guess I already poked fun of it, but the, the time between when Superman drops Lois off at the paper and when Cobalt hears the newsboy couldn't have been very long because it's basically all one big scene. So there's no way that the planet could have gotten an addition out with Lois's story that quickly. Today, they would even be hard-pressed to get a full story online that quickly. But like I said, it's one of those frequent you know, time wonkiness things that We've seen it before, and we will no doubt see it again. Jumping ahead again to page 11, the first panel on this page is kind of funny. We see Superman sitting in the living room of of this family that he went to visit, and he's just all relaxed in the chair. He's sitting there with, you know, one leg over the other, just having a casual conversation. His cape is also draped over the back of the chair, too. I guess he didn't want to take a chance of wrinkling his costume, which is made of specially invented material that is invulnerable to bombs, bullets, fire, acid, cannon fire, and all manner of other attacks. But then at the bottom here, there's a hurricane that comes out of nowhere, which is completely random. I mean, there are houses flying through the air, entire houses, like, you know, in the midair, Wizard of Oz style, and there's trees being uprooted. On the next page, the house flies right at Superman, and Superman smashes it with one punch. It's just all insane, and more than anything else, feels like a way just to fill a few panels. Pages 12 and 13, I I do like here at the end, though, the crowd tries to lynch the phony doctors. And not only does Superman save them, but he calms the crowd and convinces them that there's a more just way for Cobalt and Grafton to pay for their crimes. Really awesome stuff. We seem to be turning a corner, finally, on Superman killing the criminals. It's interesting and probably not at all a coincidence that it's happening just as they were gearing up for the Superman-themed Children's Day at the World's Fair. Unfortunately, there are still more deaths on Superman's hands down the road, but we do seem to finally be turn, turning a corner on that somewhat. Overall, I, I like this story for the most part. I think my biggest complaint is that it was about four pages too long. I sat down to read it the other day and I thought I was almost to the end of the story and realized I still had six pages to go. There was quite a bit at the end that it, it didn't feel tacked on per se, but maybe just a little bit like Siegel was, you know, biding time until he hit the final page. After Superman takes the information to the Daily Planet, there are a few pages in there that are really ultimately unimportant to the story, which is why I largely breezed through them in my synopsis. So, in that respect, I I think it might have worked better as a newspaper story, where Siegel could have wrapped it up sooner, because he wouldn't have been stuck with that, you know, 13-page structure. 
But this is very much the typical type of problem for Superman in this era of social justice. Polio was obviously still a big issue in the 40s and something that was in the, on the mind of the people. People offering phony medicine and, and cures was probably a big problem then too. We've got a much freer flow of information today and it's still an issue that comes up. So I can definitely believe that it was a problem back in 1940. So yeah, even though I enjoyed it, it's it's not one of the strongest stories, but it served to bring attention to something that was a major issue in those days. So it gets points for that in my book. I also want to note that this is the second story that references infantile paralysis, as in the Superman story from the 1939 World's Fair issue, Superman helped to build the infantile paralysis exhibit for the fair, which had fallen behind in its construction. So, again, interesting that this is coming out just as the fair is starting up its second season, when it was also mentioned in the first World's Fair story. Art-wise, it's okay. Uh, kind of a letdown after the awesome Jack Burnley art from the, the World's Fair issue, but it's still very much on par with what we've seen in recent comic book stories. It gets much better in the back half of the story once Cassidy takes over, but I don't really have too much else to say about the art beyond that. The S on Superman's chest looks as it has recently, with the slightly stylized red S on a yellow field and a red border. It's a little smaller than it was in the last newspaper storyline we looked at, but fairly consistent otherwise. And the S on his cape is yellow on a blue field. So again, that's consistent with the cover and the last issue of Superman, but opposite of the World's Fair issue where it was a blue S on a yellow field. This story has been reprinted twice, first in Superman, the Action Comics Archives, Volume 2, then more recently in Superman Chronicles, Volume 4. And just as a reminder, we are into a new volume of the Chronicles now on the show, because we polished off the last one with the World's Fair story. So, time to crack open a new volume, folks. Rocketed as a beam from the exploding planet Krypton. Kal-El grew to manhood on Earth, whose yellow sun and lighter gravity gave him fantastic superpowers. In the city of Metropolis, he poses as TV newsman Clark Kent, but battles evil all over Earth and beyond as Superman. Superman of the Bronze Age is a weekly podcast covering the adventures of Superman from 1970 to 1986. Join host Charlie Niemeyer at superbronze1970.libson.com. Other features in this issue include Pet Morgan, the Black Pirate, the Three Aces, Tex Thompson, Clip Carson, and Zaytara. The Tex Thompson story here, in the opening caption, it mercifully writes out the character of Gargantua T. Potts, explaining that he signed up to be a cook in the French army. The story then goes on to introduce a new character, Miss X, who will be a recurring character for about a year and a half. And in the Zaytara story, <laughs> Zaytara turns Tong, his manservant, into a robot, or a winged Iron Man, as the narration calls it. Basically a robot with a propeller on his head, 
so that he can pursue some fleeing criminals. It's it's very bizarre. I have not been regularly reading any of the other features in Action Comics as we go through. I do quickly skim them, but I I don't you know thoroughly read them on a regular basis. Looking through these Atara strip though, <laughs> it looks like a a weird trip on on almost a monthly basis. At least a lot more than I thought it would be. Uh, but this issue also has half-page ads for Superman number five and the Superman radio show, as well as a quarter-page ad for Batman number one, featuring all brand new adventures of the Batman and Robin, the original Boy Wonder. They don't mention it in the ad, but that comic also features the first appearance of the Joker and Catwoman. There is also the Big Six ad that we've seen before. It, it gets somewhat of a redesign this time out, shrinking it down to three-quarters of a page and replacing Ultraman with the Green Lantern as the All-American Comics feature. Superman, the Sandman, the Batman, the Spectre, and the Flash all remain in their respective books. It occurs to me that with this redesign, this ad is now fully comprised of characters that are still published today. Or were, anyway. Uh, technically, I guess only Superman and Batman have been seen in the new 52 reboot as of this recording. But The Flash and Green Lantern were both relatively high profile before that, and The Sandman and The Spectre both had legacy characters taking their spots. So that's very cool. And last but not least, we have our 12th Superman of America page. It's a bit truncated this time because they've got a, a big ad for a model airplane magazine below it. But in Superman's message, he talks about how uh, spring and summer weather has rolled around again and how outdoor exercise and eating right are not only good, but apply to the club's motto as well. He says, naturally, exercise builds strength. And by putting ourselves wholeheartedly into games, we are bound to develop courage. And as for justice, what better way can there be to reach a true understanding of the word than by honest and fair play in sports of all kinds? The secret message can be decoded using code PLUTO, number 8, on our Superman of America club decoder. And the message is, let us all strive to build ourselves into true Superman. As for other books on the stands... And it kind of seems like it's been quite a while since I've had to look at other books. But we had More Fun Comics, number 56, with the first appearance of Congo Bill by Whitney Ellsworth and George Papp. Congo Bill is an adventure strip in the vein of Alex Raymond's Jungle Jim. He may be better known by his Silver Age incarnation of Congorilla. And we'll be seeing more of Congo Bill down the road as he moves over to Action Comics in about a year. And of course, Whitney Ellsworth gets constant plugs on the show because he's editing the the uh, action in Superman books now. And George Papp is a name that we, you know, might be hearing on the show quite a bit down the road. He had quite a lengthy run on Superboy, and he also did some stories in Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen, as well as a few Legion stories. So, if we ever get to the Silver Age of comics on this show, you know, when I'm 150 years old, <laughs> we may be hearing more about George Papp. But there was also Detective Comics number 40. Joker was on the cover, but not inside, as the Batman story had the first appearance of Clayface. Uh, the original Clayface, Basil Carlo, not the shape-shifting mud monster that he would become 
uh, or that would come along in the Silver Age. Also in this issue, Howard Sherman takes over the art on Slam Bradley from Dennis Neville, though Jerry Siegel is still writing, of course. Adventure Comics number 51 has a Sandman cover by Craig Flessel. Superman number 5 and the 1940 issue of New York World's Fair Comics both went on sale in May 1940, and we've talked about those in recent episodes. Flash Comics number 7 came out. According to Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics, the Hawkman story in that issue is called Zar the Unkillable Man, and features a villain named Zar who dies in the story and never makes a return. So apparently he wasn't so unkillable after all. What may be the biggest book of the month was All-American Comics number 16, which has an awesome cover and the first appearance of Alan Scott, the Green Lantern, by Bill Finger and Martin O'Dell. Alan Scott is a railroad engineer who comes into possession of a magic lantern made of a mysterious green metal. He then fashions a ring from from a chunk of the metal, which, if touched against the lantern once every 24 hours, would be charged with a powerful form of energy, able to manipulate any object except for wood. With Green Lantern's debut, only one member of the original lineup of the Justice Society of America has yet to appear. I'm not going to tell you who it is, but if you can guess, write in and let me know. The cover logo of this magazine also gets a redesign, making it look more like those of action, detective, adventure, and more fun. This month also saw the debut of All-Star Comics, which started out as an anthology title. The first issue has stories featuring The Spectre and Red, White, and Blue, both by Jerry Siegel, as well as Hawkman, The Sandman, The Flash, The Hourman, and more. Big things happen in this title, starting with issue number three, so stay tuned to future episodes for that. And finally, there was Mutton Jeff number two, and a second issue of More Fun Comics, issue 57, but nothing too notable about either book. Outside of DC, Marvel had three books, including Red Raven Comics number one, which featured Jack Kirby's first work for the company, as well as his first collaboration with Joe Simon for, for that company. Fawcett debuted Nickel Comics, which was uh, half the price of other comics, as the title might suggest, but it was also half the pages. However, it comes out twice a month, so they're still putting out 64 pages of content for your dime every month. It's just more spread out. This first issue of Nickel Comics features the first appearance of Bullet Man. And finally, Quality also debuted a new title, National Comics with the first appearance of the patriotic hero known as Uncle Sam in a story that I believe is credited to Will Eisner. Do you enjoy time travel in general and the Silver Age of comic books in particular? If so, join me each week on the Superman Fan Podcast... My name is Billy Hogan, and I will be your host. Together, we'll crash through the time barrier and fly into the past to explore the Silver Age adventures of Superman. One week, we will take a look at the Superman family of titles, Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen, World's Finest Comics, and soon, Superman's girlfriend Lois Lane. 
The next week, we will feature the Man of Steel's titles, Superman and Action Comics, which will include the Supergirl stories during her run in the back of that title. You can join me each week on Wednesday or Thursday at the supermanfanpodcast.blogspot.com, which is available on iTunes. And your emails are always welcome at supermanfanpodcast at gmail.com. And don't forget to wear your red indestructible cape. December 7th. Earth 2. 1941. A world very much like our own, yet slightly different. A date which will live in infamy. A world at war. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. Following the Japanese sneak attack on Pearl Harbor, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt brought together the largest group of mystery men ever assembled to battle the Axis powers. Tales of the Justice Society of America presents The All-Star Squadron. The Tales of the Justice Society of America, every Friday at twotruefreaks.libson.com. So that's it for this time, folks. I want to thank you all for joining me. Like I said, Charlie Niemeyer will be back next episode for a look at the eighth storyline from the radio show, which has been called Buffalo Hills. Before then, please feel free to stop by the website at greatcrypton.com for show notes and back episodes of the show. The site will also give you the iTunes link and the RSS feed if you want to subscribe to the show. You can also find the show on both Facebook and Twitter. Follow the show on both sites to get updates whenever I have a new episode or show-related news to share. Links to the show's pages on both networks can be found at the site, or you can just you know, search for them on Facebook or Twitter and they will come up. Feel free to e- send me your emails to thrillingadventures at greatcrypton.com or you can leave me a message at the website or through Facebook and Twitter. Also, please don't forget the Superman homepage as well as the Superman Podcast Network. Both have all manner of other Superman-related content, plus updates on, are posted on both sites whenever I have a new episode of the show out. So both are definitely worth your time if you have even a passing interest in Superman. Please give a listen to my other podcast, Green Lantern's Light, which I co-host with Jeffrey Taylor and J. David Weider. It's 
Not about Alan Scott, unfortunately, but we will keep you entertained looking at the late bronze and modern age adventures of the Silver Age Green Lantern, Hal Jordan, as well as John Stewart and Guy Gardner. And I'm sure, as he is wont to do, that Alan Scott will come up eventually. And last but not least, I mentioned at the top of the episode that I had a podcasting-related announcement, and here it is. Legends of the Batman is making a comeback. Legends is a podcast hosted by Michael Kaiser and myself, where we are covering everything Batman from the beginning. We launched uh, last spring and then had to take an unexpected hiatus, but now the show is coming back better than ever. The first new episode will be out Thursday, March 1st, so tell your friends and tell your neighbors, and head on over to BatmanLegends.com for more awesomeness that is the Golden Age Batman. But that's it for this episode. As always, Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster and is copyright DC Comics. So thanks again for listening to the thrilling adventures of Superman, folks, and I will talk to you later. Goodbye. In 1930, the Republican-controlled House of Representatives, in an effort to alleviate the effects of the, anyone, anyone, the Great Depression, passed the, anyone, anyone, a tariff bill, the Hawley-Smoot Tariff Act, which anyone raised or lowered, raised tariffs, in an effort to collect more revenue for the federal government. Did it work? Anyone? Anyone know the effects? It did not work, and the United States sank deeper into the Great Depression. Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? Anyone? Anyone seen this before? The Laffer Curve. Anyone know what this says? It says that at this point on the revenue curve, you will get exactly the same amount of revenue as at this point, this is very controversial. Does anyone know what Vice President Bush called this in 1980? Anyone? Something D-O-O.